Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Ben Jensen. Ben is the founder of an education consultancy, Learning First. Previously, he was director of the Grattan Institute's school education program, and before that with the OECD, where he conducted international research on education policy and school and teacher effectiveness. Welcome, Ben. Thanks very much, Mark. Tell us about Learning First. What what does that work involve? So we work with a number of systems, well, most states actually across the country and a number of systems around the world. Um, We normally have sort of long-term engagements rather than short and sharp consultancies, trying to, what we call it in a very broad term, we're trying to connect policy to the classroom. So looking at school improvement agendas, leadership development, curriculum implementation issues, these sorts of things. And um, yeah, we've we've been up and going about six years now and um, it's going really well. I, uh, I made comment at the time of the PISA results and the uh, saturation media coverage that ensued from all that, that I thought the, the, the smartest article or the best thing I read was written by uh, you. Um, you know, PISA lands every couple of years. We have this great national uh, conversation. Everyone's an expert on education, of course, so we don't suffer from lack of views. Um, when those PISA results landed last year and they were challenging for Australian schools and Australian systems, talk a little bit about how you interpreted those results. So, look, that they were disappointing results for everyone. Um, I, Having worked at the OECD, I know the PISA test really well. Um, Do you so, trust it? People are sceptical of it. Yeah, and I think people are sceptical of all tests and... I definitely trust PISA. I know the amount of work that goes into making it consistent and making it a quality test. It's also given, like the, the thing with testing is it's always expensive and it's always expensive to run. And the most expensive part of a test is actually how it's marked. And the PISA test is a very comprehensive test of basically problem solving abilities in mathematics, science and reading. And it's incredibly comprehensive and it's both a test development, the assessment, and also the sampling design. I know there's a lot of talk about the sampling design, how countries get to choose which schools, but having been on the other on the other side of this and see it happen, it's completely random and it works. You know, I, I really do trust the test. I think it's a very good, consistent measure of performance. So before we just get to your analysis of Australia's results, you know, I, th- I think, you know, we, we have these testing regimes nationally NAPLAN and PISA. Just just talk a little bit about the differences between the two of them, because in in a sense, I've had it explained to me that um, NAPLAN uh, assesses the fundamentals, the building blocks of learning, but you want to be doing well in PISA because it's taking how that learning is applied and particularly the deeper thinking skills that we want to be a product of education. Yeah, and I think I think there's a, a key element of, of that that's very true in terms of because the PISA test is larger and has the ability to do so, it actually gets into those deeper problem-solving skills that require students to apply their knowledge to, to real-world problems, whereas NAPLAN has a mix of both foundational and higher-order skills. But, you know, in terms of how long students sit, it's a shorter test, the marking is, you know, uh, much more automated than with PISA and these sorts of things. And so it has the foundational skills, but it also has a real mix. Like, I think it's it's too... We, we often hop into PISA's higher-order and NAPLAN's foundational. PISA does the whole range, yeah. and it's also one of those things which... 
gets back to my analysis of this as well is we are really quick to say there are foundational skills and we separate them from higher order thinking skills where really you know NAPLAN has a big focus on reading comprehension that's critical thinking Mm. like from reading comprehension from about grade two up is critical thinking skills which people normally associate with higher order but we very quickly basket NAPLAN into the oh it's just the foundational so and then it's higher order where really the PISA results show we have problems across the board so uh, you know, to summarise, attention must be paid. You know, we should look carefully at the PISA results. You look carefully at the PISA results that came out at the end of last year. What did you think the lessons were for Australian education? So, I think that there's a few things. I think we, as you said, we jump very quickly to a lot of big policy conclusions and a lot of big policy implications. And the big, the big takeaway from me is that we have to change the way we develop and we talk about education. So we had a lot of ideas about how PISA was, you know, the product of maybe it was Australian curriculum's fault or maybe it was, um, some people said technology, even though there was no evidence around that. We talked about this agenda or that agenda. And for me and the work we do, I go back to, well, PISA focuses on mathematics, reading and science. So what's actually happening in mathematics, reading and science classrooms? And that's what we talked about in that article of going, well, we actually don't have great information about what's happening in those classrooms. And the work, part of the reason we work on such long-term relationships with systems is I fundamentally believe that part of our problem is we always operate and discuss and debate at the higher level. And that makes it much harder for teachers in the classroom because they get bombarded with all these requirements about and all these things that they should and shouldn't do that are very, very high level. And policy and debate never says, well, what does that mean for a classroom or rarely says that. And that means it's all left to teachers who have to muddle their way through this. Some do it really well, some struggle. Most are incredibly overworked. And so how do we actually move this forward? What Pisa said to me was, we need to better understand what's happening in our classrooms. And, um, you know, taking from that, does that mean we need to be, in a sense, more prescriptive or provide more detailed support for teachers, not just this is the ground you should cover, but this is how you should be uh, teaching those uh, subjects in a more detailed way? So I think we definitely need to be more precise about what we do and provide more advice on um, what, A, what needs to be taught and then advice on how we teach that. And what I think the, the big difference between where we have got to now as opposed to a more prescriptive or more precise approach is when we talk about teaching practice, we normally talk about it in very general sense. So we've had a big push around teacher quality and a big push on evidence-based practice over say what, 10 or 15 years. And what's been interesting when you sort of sit back and look at that The evidence around effective teaching practices are nearly all general pedagogy. They're not subject specific. And our focus on teacher quality and building the teaching profession has really become divorced from the curriculum. So when we used to talk about a lot about the different teaching practices that are differences in how we teach reading or differences in how we teach science, mathematics, now we try and make it very general. And for me, getting back to, well, there are real differences in how we teach science to how we need to teach mathematics and what needs to be covered. And so we just need to be more precise about that and offer that to teachers. And when you look at uh, curriculum as it's developed and articulated into schools around the world, 
Uh, is there a level of precision around that advice and a level of precision around good pedagogy in different subjects that, that is not in evidence in the way we construct Australian curriculum? Yeah, I think that's a really good point and it's really interesting. So if you look at the systems that are above us on those international assessments, mm. so if you look at Finland, Canada, um, Singapore, Hong Kong and so on, they provide much more support to teachers around the precise nature of what needs to be taught and how it needs to be taught. Mm. Now, teachers don't have to follow that. They have the, you know, they can adapt, adopt, they can ignore if they want in some cases, although you know, that depends on the country. Um, we keep it at a very high level. We demand a lot more of teachers in terms of choosing, developing instructional materials. We provide a lot more of teachers in prioritising the curriculum what what needs to be fitting i mean since the australian curriculum came out over you know almost a decade ago we hear a lot from teachers how do i fit all this content how do i fit the breadth of the curriculum into a, into my school year so why do we do that why is that a hallmark of australian curriculum that lack of in a sense i mean i mean there's been a debate here in new south wales that the curriculum is very crowded you've got to cover a lot of ground but that lack of uh support or prescriptiveness around how to teach it. Why has that not been a hallmark of Australian curriculum, do you think? So it's a really interesting point, and we've, we've been trying to work this out for a while now, and I think it's been a slow evolution, because we used to be. Mm. If you go back 20, 30 years, we used to actually be a lot more specific about these things. And so I think it's a few things. One, we had the big autonomy agenda in Australia. Um, it started in Victoria in the 90s under the Kennett government, um, and that really pushed school autonomy and, you know. So states going off on their own. Well, no, no, no not just states, schools, schools, schools yeah. and teachers. And, um, but we were very imprecise about, well, autonomous over what? So, um, and, you know, and mixed in with that became this notion of, I think this notion of you are a true professional if you do it all yourself. Yeah. So teacher professional status got conflated with autonomy. Yeah. Right. And those two things actually meant that when we go go into discussion about supporting teachers, if you provide more precision around, you know, support to teachers, then you're actually impinging on their autonomy. Which is which is kind of perverse when you think of other professions yeah. as well. You can imagine someone putting up one of these towers around Sydney, uh, you know, that that the engineers unilaterally decide that the stress levels or the load base that they're putting into that building are going to be different to set industry standards or yeah. you know there was a famous case over at st vincent's hospital where a doctor unilaterally changed the doses of chemotherapy because he thought they were a bit high which got that doctor into significant trouble because there are clearly agreed industry standards or professional standards of what works yeah. which everyone's expected to follow but that hasn't been a hallmark of education no, and I think what's interesting is I think it is more so in some countries. Yeah. So if you, well, well, no one's done a great study of measuring, you know, status of the profession. When you, we normally think of places like Finland, Singapore, some parts of Canada as having much higher professional status for teachers than is in Australia, and they all provide much more support to teachers around what should be taught, what should be prioritised in the curriculum, how to do it. Yeah. Um, they provide much more resources. doesn't mean teachers are forced to do it. No one's standing there saying, you must do this. But as you say, um, giving examples from other professions, we somehow have this notion that you're only a professional if you do it all yourself. If you not only take the blood test, but design the blood test as well. 
Um, and then analyze it under the micro- microscope yourself. Yourself, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas other professions and other countries provide much more support and then I think build the teaching. Yeah. Now, what I find really interesting about that is when you leave it all to teachers, the only way you think that is actually building the profession is if you believe that teaching's a whole lot easier than it actually is. Mm. So if you believe that teaching is actually just general pedagogy, if you believe that teaching is pretty straightforward and it's really about classroom management and just being, you know, caring about kids, you know, if that's all teaching is, then yeah, that, that then you can leave it all to teachers. If you believe that it's a true profession that provides, in, requires incredible expertise, then of course you provide support. And that's what other systems do. One of the interesting things that, that I see in this debate, I suppose, coming from our position in New South Wales, is that, you know, I get into a lot of conversations where people talk about different contexts, that, you know, a school is not a school is not a school, that um, depending on the environment, the community that it's serving, the background of the kids, the prior levels of attainment of the kids, the complexity that they're bringing from home, that schools are pretty different places. Um, And so you need to be tailoring, in a sense, to meet the needs of kids in local contexts. And so there's, there's a bit of, I suppose, reluctance to kind of come in from a, a corporate office and be quite prescriptive yeah. about um, it's this way, not that way, and in a sense be seen to be overrunning the expertise of uh, the local. So, th- so there's this kind of scepticism about um, the centre telling, uh, if you like. So how do good systems deal with providing that material and providing that expertise, but also recognising you want there to be strong engagement locally around adapting that. Yeah. So I think that's a real issue for systems um, and how to manage that. I think um, it's also a, a, a almost, I wonder if it's a hallmark of Australian systems because Australian systems are so big. I mean, if you look at our system here in New South Wales, if you dropped it in the US, a bit smaller than the New York City system, bigger than any other system in the US, but of course our geography is yeah. absolutely vast. And so um, there's such a, such big systems and such diversity within it's even harder to 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 kind of in a sense codify or recommend yeah so i think that's definitely true um and you know when you look at most of north america with all those school districts and so on but i think it's really important and this goes back to the autonomy agenda of so what needs to be adapted right and when you actually start to pull that apart you go well actually kids need to learn pretty much the same things Mm -hmm. right it's not like mathematics is different in a poor regional town as opposed to a wealthy suburb. Yeah. Um, effective pedagogy is generally effective pedagogy. And then we start to pull it apart. Well, actually, what is different? And school culture is different. You'll have different requirements because kids coming in, health, local issues, and so on. And they require adaptation. There's no doubt about that. But when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of teaching and learning, we you will find that most classes have a range of, of uh, students of different ability levels. You'll find that some classes, of course, have a whole lot of students, say from non-English speaking backgrounds who have particular needs and so on. But that's a large number of schools face that. Um, and so you actually start to pull it apart. And once you get into the weeds, you actually find it, you actually say, well, actually there's a whole lot of teaching and learning that is common across the system. And if we provide more resources and precise support for teachers in those areas, you'll actually enable, create a base that enables greater adaptation, mm-hmm. right? So in, in actual fact, by not being prescriptive, 
we say, actually, you go and work this out. So while you're dealing with all that adaptation, you've got to go and spend about 15 hours a week developing curricular and instructional materials because we don't do that for you. Yeah. Well, you've got to choose it from somewhere. And if we provide that, we actually enable greater adaptation rather than standardization. So you're saying really that that systems around the world that provide, in a sense, more detailed, more structured curriculum support, um, that that's not seen as an attack on the status of teachers or a lack of trust of teachers, but it's almost liberating teachers to what they can do best in the local context. Um, do you, you know, in the teachers that you talk to, um, do, do you feel that they are crying out for a better, more detailed level of support for systems around curriculum? So, yes, and we, so, sorry, there's always variation amongst the system. There are always some people who say we don't need it, but in general, teachers we work with are dying for more support. And there's, there's a, a few aspects through this. One is that I often hear is why do we have to reinvent the wheel? Mm. Why are you asking us to rewrite a curriculum when the school down the and also the school down the road and the school after that and the school after that? Like surely there's a best in the world that we can use because yeah. we have all this other stuff to deal with. Another one of is new teachers just out. Yeah. Basically asking in disbelief, why are you asking me to write a curriculum on my first year of teaching? Mm. Like how on earth do you think this is the best way to run a system? Um, and then just the other one is the plain fact that teachers teaching out a subject yeah. teachers overloaded with everything i mean i often think part of us making teachers general making the debate being very general very high level is that we forget with our primary schools we are asking teachers to be exp have expertise across a large number of subjects and that requires so much expertise in curriculum, subject knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge, and so on, that the ask on primary school teachers in particular is just so huge that they just often throw their hands up and say, well, what do you want me to do? Mm. Yeah. Um, just, just going into that a bit more, I mean, PISA looks at 15-year-olds. I think there's often, you know, and often focuses the debates on high school, yep. so there's a lot of debate and conversation on high schools and even even policies like HSC minimum standard if you look at the decline in the number of students reaching minimum standards as they progress through yeah. um, NAPLAN through to year nine do you think we're letting primary schools off the hook do you think there should be more of a focus on the outcomes we're seeing and what our expectation should be around primary schools Totally. And I think that feeds into a number of things. A, that curriculum issue we were just discussing, but also um, I think there's also an issue there around the status and the, and the um, attention we pay primary education. I mean, historically, you know, secondary school teachers always had much higher professional status than primary school teachers. It was only a couple of decades ago that they actually paid quite a bit more. Um, but also we just... I think it's very easy to assume that we get primary school right and it's just in secondary school that we have problems because, you know, they are more manifest and more tangible once we get to secondary school. The international testing shows, you know, PISA, TIMS and PEARLS. PEARLS looking at, um, I think it's grade four, TIMS is going through from primary through to secondary. We've got a large number of students not meeting minimum standards all the way through. Um, we know the payoffs are in early education in terms of return on investment, but I think we just throw so much at primary schools to do um, rather than actually realising it's very, very difficult. We are so much at primary school teachers. 
Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to um, the kind of support we give to schools because I have a um, pet hypothesis that, that, you know, not everyone may agree with, is that schools and teachers are getting support from somewhere. Uh, it's either being provided by the department or it's being provided by somewhere else. I mean, I must say, I do go into schools and say, why this reading program? Why this writing program? Why this maths program? And usually they'll have seen it somewhere. They knew somewhere uh, where someone said it worked. It's very much kind of anecdotal. But, but you don't always get a sense that it's been uh, a highly discerning selection tailored for the context rather than word of mouth recommendation, almost like read this book, I enjoyed it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so are you saying that departments like the Department of Education, organisations like NESA, really should be, you know, doing that analysis of what works best and presenting out to schools in a sense of, well, we think from where you are, this is what you need to be thinking about and looking about, and this is, in a sense, a range of tools and resources that we think would work best for you, but putting some guide rails around that. So... Um, yes and no. So I definitely, you know, the feedback we get from schools and I see the same thing of people choosing programs, um, you know, it's not necessarily based on evidence because the evidence just isn't available to schools mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and it's also time when we ask them to do so much. Oh, I've got, a, I've got Sunday afternoon, I'm choosing my materials. So what do you really expect me to do? I can't do a massive literature review. And I think that gets back to, so whether or not it's providing support to each individual school in terms of here are recommendations for you, or just saying at grade four, here are the resources available that we think are high quality. So, and I think in terms of providing that support or that you know detailed resources in, for teachers, it doesn't necessarily have to be the department or NESA developing the resource and providing them. It's actually understanding, you know, there's a big marketplace out there that people go to. So provide guidance to schools on what's considered high quality and not. So there are organizations in other countries that evaluate the marketplace. So if this is a commonly used program or textbook, then we're actually going to have a look at it and say, well, it says it's for grade four, but actually those texts aren't at grade level or that reading approach actually doesn't suit the evidence. And we're just going to, it's still up to you but we're going to make it clear to you what's actually good and bad about that program. The um, nation's education ministers have agreed to establish a national evidence institute. What would be your priority work for a national evidence institute? Exactly that. Basically, going through the instructional materials, the commonly used instructional materials in schools, and evaluating them and then providing that information to schools. So when it's Sunday afternoon and teachers are trying to work out what to teach in the next unit, they can go to the National Evidence Institute website and see what has been evaluated, what are the strengths and weaknesses. Because at the moment, when you go out there and have a look at all the programs, resources and so on that are available, there is no real indicator of quality. And if we can provide that evidence to teachers about what they will be teaching next week, I think that would be a massive step forward. Ben, just as we wrap up, I just wanted to loop back to PISA. Um, You know, it shows a 20-year decline. It shows um, significant challenges in every state and territory and um, government and non-government schools. Um, one One of the questions is a particular fall at the top quartile. 
Any thoughts on what is happening there? I mean, I think we've had a big focus on equity and disadvantaged students. I want to speak about that in a minute. But, but why the top quartile? What's that saying to us? So on the one hand, so there's a few hypotheses around. Um, there's obviously a big discussion about high ordering critical thinking, but I think there's a few things that happen. One is in the transition from primary school to secondary school. I speak to a lot of primary schools that are, you know, have really advanced students in, you know, grades five and six, but they're struggling with, well, what do we actually, you know, what do we teach these students? What are the appropriate text materials to actually teach these students rather than just hold them back? Mm. And then in that early secondary space, you know, it's very, we, schools are confronted, you know, in particularly year seven and eight with a very large range of ability students. And so they concentrate on the middle and it's just really hard to ex extend those. Yeah, and, and I should just add to that. I mean, I think this is a question that Jeff Masters has been wrestling with with the New South Wales Curriculum Review. And there were some anecdotes that came back to him about students who are ready to press on and just how hard it was for teachers in a context to be able to extend some kids whilst dealing with the majority of students in the class. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and also our, our new policy around um, highly talented students is really an attempt to kind of make sure we're putting material out there for classroom teachers to support that. Um, finally, though, the, the PISA challenge does show the gap, you yeah. know, the equity challenge. Uh, we're putting more money in to needs-based funding. Yeah. I don't think there is a system in the country that doesn't want to lift the performance of students, particularly from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds. But it's still a pretty sobering report card in what we're seeing in PISA. Yeah, yeah I, I found it really difficult when PISA was released that there wasn't more discussion about equity. Um, the, the equity angle or the equity issues in Australian education are pretty frightening, I think. Just n not that they exist, but also that they're just increasing so much. Um, and that's been part of our focus on trying to get really high quality instructional materials available to teachers. Um, because the evidence shows that that actually has a big, big equity impact, that that is really helpful for those teach those students um, at either end of the spectrum. Because if you provide the instructional materials, it really does address that question of, well, what do I, you know, I'm, I have this ability range, what do I teach um, these students at either end of the ability range? And so I think there is something there. And I think this also gets back to our issue around primary schools of, you know, disadvantage or low achievement starts very early mm -hmm. and you know this is our equity problem manifests itself in secondary school but it begins in primary school yeah and i know we talk a lot about early childhood and we should but we're actually not talking i think enough about how we really support teachers primary school teachers to provide the level of teaching and learning required of the New South Wales curriculum in this case, or the Australian curriculum more broadly. And, and I think it goes to what Andreas Schleicher said to me after the last PISA rounds. You think you have a needs-based system here in Australia, but you're yet to be able to demonstrate you can get your very best teachers and your very best principals in front of the students in greatest need. And I think yeah. if you put a map um, over the PISA results or the NAPLAN results, we know it's um, children in rural areas, remote areas, and the most disadvantaged areas of our big cities um, that are in greatest need. But you know, anyone who runs a big system will say that those schools are often the hardest schools to get staff yeah. to, particularly experienced staff to. And so often you have very new teachers in front of very challenging kids who need a lot of support 
and uh, your hypothesis is that the support is not being provided in the most useful form uh, yeah. for them. Ben, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for the work you're doing with Learning First and your continued advice to me and uh, a number of other leaders across Australian education. We've enjoyed uh, chatting with you today. We're going to put up a link to your Australian article uh, that you published at the time of the uh, PISA results, which I'm sure listeners today will enjoy exploring. Thanks for joining us, Ben Jensen. Thanks a lot, Mark. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student hyphen podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.